Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Take your Bible and join me this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. We're going to give our attention to a single verse that is also a hymn, uh, I believe, uh, that is also a single verse. And it is a passage that I hope will encourage us today to sing with me how great is our God. We're going to do something a little different today in that uh, after we have expounded uh, each of these stanzas or each of these lines, uh, we'll then stand and sing a song that uh, appropriately, I think, uh, accompanies the truth that we find uh, in that particular text. So we're going to uh, preach and sing, preach and sing, preach and sing through these six lines, which say this. He was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world and received up in glory. What we sing in worship should matter because what we sing should reflect our theology. From its very beginning, the church was a singing church and what they sang was spiritual, but also what they sang was theological. Indeed, their singing expressed the love that they had for the Lord Jesus in their heart, but it also expressed what they believed about our Savior in their souls as well. E.P. Sanders, who teaches over at Duke, has noted that there are at least the following uh, hymns in the New Testament Scriptures, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, and 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Now, I think a question needs to be raised at this point, and that is this. What purpose did these hymns serve, and what purpose do they serve being located in our New Testament? And further, what insights do we glean when we discover that embedded in the Scriptures are these hymns? Well, I think at least four observations can be made. Number one. The hymns reveal the kind of Christology and the kind of Christological affirmations made in the earliest days of the church. Secondly, because the hymns are earlier than their citation in the New Testament, they are even more primitive than the New Testament record. Thirdly, the hymns represent what one man calls Christological explosions of worship and adoration in the early church. And finally, the rich Christological content of the hymn suggests that from the very earliest days of the church, the believing community in praise and worship and confession embraced a very high Christology. The wonderful New Testament scholar Ralph Martin, who's done a lot of research in the hymns of the New Testament, says it this way. Christian compositions appeal to God whose nature is known in Jesus Christ. Indeed, the New Testament teaching on the person of Christ is virtually contained in its hymns. And then he adds this. 
The hymns are essentially soteriological in their purpose. And they set forth the person of Christ in relation to his world as reconciler and to his world as ruler. But inasmuch as he accomplished what God alone can do, it was but a short step for the early Christians to set him on a level with God in their worship. 1 Timothy 3.16 is concise, and yet it is a powerful one-verse hymn that extols the virtues of our Lord. In fact, one man has said, 1 Timothy 3.16 is Paul's, How great thou art. It is indeed the high point and the very heart of the first letter to Timothy. It weds beautifully what we believe with how we are to behave. Look at verse 14 and 15 as the preface to the hymn. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. For if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he moves into this beautiful hymn. Various divisions of the six lines have been proposed. Uh, Our own uh, Andres Kostenberger believes it is best viewed as three couplets. I'm going to simply this morning walk you through each line one by one. And I think you're going to see how beautifully it unfolds for us in some sense a chronological portrayal of the entirety of the career or the life of Jesus Christ. Now, prefacing the hymn, Paul has said simply this without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. The NIV renders it this way, beyond all question. The mystery of godliness is great. In other words, Christians are unanimous in their affirmation that the mystery of God is something that is unfathomable. It is something that goes beyond our human comprehension. Indeed, the word mystery, the word mysterion in the Greek language, speaks of a truth that was previously concealed, but now revealed. One man said it is now an open secret, a newly revealed truth that is available to everyone. Here, I believe the word godliness in this context most likely stands for the Christian faith as it is revealed and embodied in Jesus. That is who he is and what he has accomplished for us. And so Paul both says confession and conduct are crucial to a balanced Christian life. And in this line, this six-line hymn, he is going to make much about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done as the church saying to him and about him. In fact, I can almost hear the voices of the early church calling us to come alongside of them and sing this hymn, to sing to the one that Augustine called beauty ever ancient and beauty ever new. And so what do we learn from the first line in this particular hymn? We learn, first of all, that we should sing about the incarnation of our Lord. Great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. The NIV says he appeared in a body. The New American Standard says he was revealed in the flesh. Of course, the word flesh is the Greek word sarks. It speaks of a a very tangible, physical fleshly manifestation. But furthermore, the fact that he was revealed in the flesh at least implies a previous concealment and a previous location. 
Unlike the pagan gods of the Greek pantheon that often masqueraded as men, the Bible says the Son of God became a man, adding to his divine nature a true and genuine human nature. As John 1.14 so beautifully says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Born of a virgin, living a sinless life, Jesus was, as Colossians 2.9 says, the fullness of deity in bodily form. If you like, he was God in a bod. He was God revealed in the flesh. As I was thinking about the, the incarnation, the song, Here I Am to Worship, came to my mind. Light of the world, you stepped down into darkness. Humbly you came to the earth you created. All for love's sake, you became poor. And so, Dr. Boozer, you come at this time and lead us as we celebrate the incarnation, as we sing about the incarnation, singing the song, Here I Am to Worship. Would you stand with me?
was manifested in the flesh, we should sing about the incarnation of our Lord. Secondly, the Bible says he was justified in the spirit. We should sing about the resurrection of our Lord. That word justified in this particular context is probably better understood to mean vindicated. He was vindicated in the spirit. We have a similar idea found in Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 4, where Paul exclaims, Jesus Christ, our Lord, was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so most students of Scripture believe that this second line is a resurrection reference. It is a, a an indication and a exclamation of the resurrection of King Jesus from the dead. Peter also, I believe, understood this same truth. For in First Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, he writes these words, He was put to death in the flesh. But he was made alive by the spirit or it could be translated made alive in his spirit. In other words, this second line beautifully complements the first line. The first given emphasis to the work of the incarnation and the flesh. And now the second line giving emphasis to the work of the spirit and the resurrection. In other words, Jesus Christ was indeed revealed in the flesh, but he was also gloriously raised again from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. I like the insights of David McClendon, or David McLeod, excuse me, who at Emmaus Bible College said this of this second line, Christ's earthly manifestation in flesh culminated in a criminal's death accompanied by horrible violence. But the cross was not a defeat. It was a triumph over death and hell. By his death, he defeated death. And by his resurrection, he was vindicated. His name was cleared of all blame and suspicion. And he was shown to be the Christ, the son of the living God. On earth, in flesh, he was charged with blasphemy. But in the realm of his spirit, he stood before a more august tribunal and was made for us. That is, all the punishment for sin was laid on him by God and the judge of all humankind. In his spirit, Christ endured his most intense suffering as he experienced the curse of sin. And as the great sin bearer through his resurrection, he has vindicated his claim that he is the sinless and the spotless son of God. He has indeed been vindicated by the Spirit in glorious resurrection. The tomb is empty. He has arisen. And so again, we will sing to the glory of King Jesus, the wonderful hymn, Christ Arose. Again, stand with me as we celebrate his resurrection.
He was manifested in the flesh, his incarnation. He was justified in the spirit, his resurrection. He was seen by angels. We should thirdly sing about the ascension of our Lord. Here Paul addresses our Lord's wonderful return back to heaven and the wonderful witness and the wonderful reception he received by the holy angels. He was seen, has the idea of beheld. They, they looked upon him. Uh, they gazed upon him. Um, they could not take their eyes off of the Savior returning back to heaven. He had been vindicated in the realm of the Spirit by his resurrection. And now he ascends to heaven as nothing less than a delightful spectacle for all of the angels to see. One man noted that Christ twice passed by the holy angels of heaven. He first descended far below them in humiliation, but then he rose far above them in glorious ascension. Again, David McLeod has, I think, a wonderful insight into this third line. One can well imagine the tremendous interest with which these angelic potentates followed the steps of Christ's humiliation from the throne of awesome majesty, agonizing shame. And as the infernal plot against Jesus thickened, they must have witnessed in amazement the non-intervention of God the Father on his behalf. Far more than 12 legions of angels must have waited breathlessly for a signal to flash across the sky for them to snatch the Son of God from death. They must have stood in stunned silence as God the Father allowed His Son to be nailed to a stake. Surely, therefore, the angelic host shouted for joy at the sight of one of their number rolling away the stone to reveal an empty tomb. And when squadrons of angels escorted the Lord of glory back to his heavenly home. Yes, the tomb is empty. And today there is a glorious lamb seated upon the throne in heaven, crowned with many, many crowns. May we again stand and celebrate the wonderful ascension of Jesus back to heaven.
seated. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels. And fourthly, he was preached among the Gentiles or better preached among the nations. We should fourthly sing about the proclamation of our Lord. The NIV says he was preached among the nations. The New American Standard and the ESV says he was proclaimed among the nations. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message says he was proclaimed among all kinds of different peoples. In other words, once more, we see a marvelous contrast. Uh, He was witnessed in heaven by the angels, but now he is to be witnessed on earth as King Jesus to the nations. One is certainly supernatural, but the other is natural. One is superhuman, but the other is done by mere mortals like you and me. This Jesus is adored in heaven. He is exalted high above all others, and yet he is to be proclaimed among the nations. And that latter assignment is not given to angels. That latter assignment is given to you and to me. It does not surprise me that the very heart of this hymn is a missionary impulse that you and I must take this glorious gospel and this good news to the nations. Perhaps as Paul penned this particular hymn, he was contemplating the great commission text of Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, the very last words of our Lord. And as the great commission text makes clear, and as this text makes clear, there is a definite and there is a specific content to the message we proclaim among the nations. Indeed, Scripture repeatedly calls it the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is also called the gospel of God. And interestingly, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, there is a flying angel in the heavens who calls it the everlasting gospel. If I might segue for just a brief moment, far too many churches today across our land do not preach the gospel. And where the gospel is not preached, people will not be saved. And furthermore, where the gospel is not preached, people will not be encouraged. They will not be energized. They will not be equipped to live as they ought for the Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, in many of our churches, we preach the gospel to get them in. But then we preach law to keep them in. But brothers and sisters, it is gospel from beginning to end. That's why that angel calls it the eternal, the everlasting gospel. It may also be the case that when Paul penned this beautiful hymn, he also had in his mind what he would write in Romans chapter 16. It's very interesting. When you get to the end of that magnificent theological treatise known as the book of Romans, you have a glorious uh, uh, word of praise, a glorious word of thanksgiving. It ends on a doxological, missiological note. And so listen to what Paul wrote at the end of Romans 16, 25 through 27. As I was working through it, I discovered in many ways it almost serves as a fitting commentary to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 16. Now to him who has power to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the sacred secret, kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures. According to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all the nations to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever. 
and ever. Yes, we have a gospel for the nations. And indeed, we have a song for the nations as well embodied in that gospel. And so at this morning, again, we will stand to our feet and we will celebrate his incarnation, his resurrection, his ascension. But also recognize that both by proclamation of the word and through the singing of the word, we tell the nations there is a savior and his name is Jesus. Would you stand with me as we sing a song for the nations? He was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world. Fifthly, we should sing about the salvation of our Lord. It's interesting to note that when Paul went to the city of Corinth, he must have had some fears and some anxieties. He may have doubted that his efforts to proclaim the gospel would bear any fruit. 
However, our sovereign, omniscient Lord knew different. And so in Acts chapter 18, verse 9 and verse 10, while Paul slept, the Lord appeared to him in a vision, and I have often been comforted by these words and been comforted by the fact that those who are in the hard places in the world also have this promise from our Savior. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city." And indeed, God did have many people in that city, and our Lord has also promised that he has many people in this world. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and verse 10 contains a wonderful eschatological missionary promise that should inspire us to go and compel us to preach. What did the revelator John write in chapter 7? After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. They were standing before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, they were saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb in heaven. They sing about the salvation of the Lamb, the salvation of our Lord. And on earth, we should do no less. In fact, I believe we should join with the angels who in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12 say it this way. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You see, the order and the promise is plain. If we proclaim him among the nations, line four, he will be believed on in the world, line five. We don't go wondering, will people be saved? They will be saved. We don't go wondering, will they hear our message? They will hear our message. If we proclaim it, people will believe it. Why? Because we have a hallelujah message about a wonderful, wonderful Savior. And so once more, let us stand and celebrate the salvation of our God, singing hallelujah, what a Savior.
He was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world and received up into glory. The final phrase is debated as to its meaning. Uh, some, even most New Testament scholars, see it as another reference to the ascension, and that could certainly be um, the correct understanding. However, I think a different interpretation fits the flow of the hymn, because I do think it is giving us a grand portrayal of the life of our Lord from his incarnation to his final, ultimate, climactic exaltation. In other words, I take this last phrase that he was received up into glory to be something along the lines of what we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, verse 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Of course, whichever interpretation is correct, there's no need to fight on it, fight over it. But if my particular understanding of the text is correct, then this majestic hymn ends on a wonderful eschatological note of victory and triumph, celebrating the universal lordship of Jesus. In other words, the one who is received up into glory is Lord over all. He is indeed the lamb upon the throne. And thus, through this hymn, as we have sung it, we have confessed a number of wonderful truths about our Lord. He was revealed by his incarnation and resurrection. That is line one and line two. He is witnessed by heaven and earth. That is line three and line four. And he is honored on earth and in heaven. That is line five and line six. Now, if you are like me. You should have experienced just a little frustration a moment ago when Dr. Boozer ended Hallelujah, What a Savior with the third stanza. Well, do not fret. As Paul Harvey would tell us, we're going to go on now and we're going to not just read, we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate the rest of the story by singing Hallelujah, What a Savior, line four, lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. And then stanza five, when he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring. Then a new song we will sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. This will appropriately serve as our closing song and our benediction. May we indeed leave today with a song in our heart. Come and sing with me. How great is our God. Let's stand together.
Lord, you are a great, great Savior. And so we join with those in heaven, those around the world, and with that great community that will be gathered around the throne someday soon. Hallelujah. What a Savior is King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.